Okay, members, I think we're live now. So if everyone can mute themselves and we can begin the meeting. And can I remind you all that we are in public session, so we are being broadcast throughout Parliament and online. Um, today's meeting will be held again fully virtually. And at the minute, we have uh, everyone except Michelle McElveen on the, the call. So we've got myself, Emma Sheeran, here. We've got Mike Ness, the vice chair, Anna Bradshaw, Carol McCullen, Mark Durkin, and Christopher Stalford. And we we can begin now. So the, the first item on the agenda is apologies. We haven't received any formal apologies, but I know that Michelle isn't here yet. So potentially she's just got, got uh, held up doing something else. And when she joins, we'll welcome her in at that stage. So we can turn then to the next item on our agenda, which is our first briefing two today. And we have a briefing from Jeffrey Dudgeon this afternoon, whose case at the European Court of Human Rights in 1981 led to the decriminalization of homosexuality in the North. So uh, Jeffrey has an extensive uh, history in this field, given that he was a member of the Bill of Rights Forum and the Haas panel of executive parties dealing with flags, Prudent and the past. He also served in Belfast City Council as a councillor for the EUP between 2014 and 2019. So members, if you turn to page five of your packs, you'll see the clerk's memo uh, from Jeffrey, as well as his own um, written statement that he has provided. So Jeffrey, I'd like to welcome you to the meeting and thank you for joining us this afternoon. And if you want to begin your briefing. Can, can you hear me there, Chair? And indeed, thank you. Okay, well, thanks very much uh, for listening to me today and for hopefully having had a look at my written submission. Uh, as you men mentioned, many of us have met before, most notably in the Gilbreth Forum Haas Talks and, of course, City, Belfast City Council. I don't wish to just repeat what I said earlier, but I will make some comments on the key points. You're now in the second of the three years set aside for considering the issue, and we're nearly now a quarter of a century on from the Belfast Agreement, so time is important. It would be fair to say that UUP members aside, and a retired judge, Sir Stephen Irwin, there'll be no witnesses before you who are serious Bill of Rights sceptics or antagonists. Obviously, a number giving evidence of not taking a position on having a bill, but simply offered advice on the realities of one should it be legislated and its consequences often unforeseen by advocates. Their views have been cautionary in many respects and might be perceived in some cases as objectively unfavourable. There remains inevitably a unionist nationalist divide on the issue. Others from the centre of politics are more varied in their views or are confused, having changed them over time. A couple of those centrists I referred to in my paper have been critical of earlier attempts at a bill, despite being part of the extended process at the time. <clears throat> a minimal bill, however, is still an option for them. They, they take a position that the Good Friday Agreement requirement was met. The slate in this area is clean and it is now for the Human Rights Commission, which agrees with this interpretation, to consider what sort of bill could now be put together. That is something within their powers, but it will be a decade-long task if it ever takes shape. A number of your MLA committee members spoke of the importance to them of equality. There are two major interpretations of that concept. <clears throat> equality of opportunity, as has been legislated for many years in the United Kingdom, and the quality of outcome, 
now known to many as equity. That is something gathering pace since the election of President Biden in the States. But can equity be affected through human rights and should equality trump human rights? So equity is in many ways a code for redistribution or the reprioritization of resources. It muddies the water of the human rights debate, especially for those who believe in protecting individual rights as opposed to collective rights. That is a second order issue linked to maximizing or minimizing a bill, but may prove an impossible ob obstacle to any political agreement. Human rights currently trump equality law. Interestingly, that was very much the fore in the Asher's Cake case when the, when the Supreme Court came down unanimously against the Belfast judiciary and in favor of the Article 10 right to freedom of expression <clears throat> that was developed in the judgment to include the right not to have not to have to express a particular opinion, the favoring of gay marriage. So preventing forced or compelled speech due to the court's jurisprudence is now held to be within Article 10. The complexities and perhaps even contradictions in the ECHR are a little known and rarely addressed matter. Many rights compete while the qualifications of each right are considerable. Article 6, 8 and 10, compliance, is a mantra rarely heard in our legacy debates, especially where they compete with Article 2, the right to life. But they're increasingly under discussion and debate, not least in relation to the police ombudsman's powers and her desire to increase them. This is true also in relation to the NIO's legacy legislation, whose precise details remain unknown. Those other ECHR articles are now much more in play than they used to be. And the law schools here in Belfast have yet to catch up with the development. The key issues I referred to in writing were, do people wish to see politics done through human rights? Because as one witness said unconvincingly, it takes heat off political issues. Do MLAs want to use the courts to try to affect socioeconomic rights or do they see that as their role as democratically elected representatives? Who appoints the judges given interpretation and the text itself is paramount? So why, if not, why bother writing such text in the first place? Then there's the problem of read across for the rest of the United Kingdom and indeed into the Republic. You've heard Pi's promises of a bill being a solution to the deepest of deep-seated problems like poverty in Belfast or housing in South Africa, problems that even with the best will in the world would take decades to significantly alleviate. South Africa is spoken of in terms of progressive realization of rights, but courts can't create resources, which is the key aspect to making real progress. Otherwise, such proposals take on a dreamlike quality similar to a religious belief. It should not be forgotten that human rights guaranteed in the ECHR also pertain to the rich and their property. The Duke of Westminster and the Prince Regnant of Liechtenstein, probably the richest men in Europe, have cases at Strasbourg on property loss. In the Prince's case, going back to the Second World War and the Soviet occupation of Austria. Religious rights are important too for churches, obviously, especially in relation to schools. Abortion is not a Strasbourg human right. There are 
significant developments in the debate that are perhaps not getting the attention they deserve. Professor Harvey alluded to one in particular, in particular, that is the continuing debate inside the government on the Human Rights Act, which in 2000 wrote the European Convention, for the most part, into UK law. Most recently in December, the Justice Minister Robert Buckland appointed a Human Rights Act Review Committee under Sir Peter Gross. Its eight members include two Irish representatives, Baroness Nula O'Lone and Maria Cahill. Their job, and I quote now from the remit, is to examine relationship between the domestic courts and the European court. And this applies, uh, this includes how the duty to take into account case law has been applied in practice. Secondly, the impact of the act on the relationship between the judiciary, executive and parliament, and whether domestic courts are being unduly drawn into areas of policy. And lastly, how the European, uh, how the act applies outside the territory of the UK, which probably refers mostly to um, Iraq and Afghanistan. You can certainly detect in that remit a desire to narrow the extent and effect of the convention in domestic law and in the Strasbourg court's apparent predominance in, in domestic law. It does not suggest a willingness to legislate at Westminster for a Northern Ireland Bill of Rights, one unique in the UK and one that would push convention boundaries further out. Another new aspect is Protocol 15 to the Convention, which is poised to take effect. It was the brainchild of Kenneth Clark when he was Minister of Justice. The Protocol's narrowing purpose is to change the Convention by adding a reference to the principle of subsidiarity and the doctrine of the margin of appreciation to the preamble, thereby to maintain the effectiveness of the court. Protocol 15 to the Convention has been agreed by 46 of the 47 Council of Europe states. It is held up, being held up by one country's failure to ratify. The change, however, is about strengthening the margin of appreciation for states and their policies as they affect human rights and encouraging decisions being made at a lower level where possible. This is obviously something welcomed in Europe, which of course ranges from Iceland to Azerbaijan and from Russia to Portugal. So in conclusion, really, the main fact is that even if agreement was reached in your committee, the European trend is not to widen the range of rights protected in the Convention or in bills, but and certainly not in the UK or indeed in the Republic. Those developments also tell you that any such changes in whatever direction take years, if not decades, to affect. So thank you indeed for listening. And I go back to yourself, Chair. Thank you very much, Jeffrey, um, both for your oral um, presentation there this afternoon and also for the, the written submission that you provided. It was very uh, concise and, and sharp and, and interesting as, as well. And I have to say, I, I, I uh, enjoyed reading it. In terms then, uh, following on from, from that presentation and, and from what you've said there this afternoon, I had a couple of questions. So um, obviously your own experience in the, the challenge that you had brought back in the, the 80s and the, the decriminalization of homosexuality uh, and the, the conversation and the, the sort of report of that that you give us and uh, I sort of picked out a couple of concerns that you had uh, namely maybe the, the concern that judges can interpret um, legislation differently and obviously anything that is ever written can be interpreted differently de depending on the perspective of whoever is, is reading and making an assessment of it and I suppose my perspective on that would be that we should 
in creating a bill of rights make it as uh, comprehensive and as clear as possible to ensure that you know that rights are, are sort of set in stone and that rights take precedence over everything else and then following on from that obviously you know that that was obviously a massive issue that affected the lgbt community at the time and and something that in in breaking down the barriers for people from the lgbt community obviously the, the law at that stage was a was a massive threat um but it, it has taken many more years. We're still in a situation where um, people who identify as LGBT will experience discrimination and will experience threats and hate crime and, and all of those other things that, that take much, much longer to, to sort of seed out of society. But in terms then of the, the reference you made to the particular circumstances of the North, and again, this is something that is open to interpretation. There's been lots of conversation around, but I think... Our, our perception of the particular circumstances of the North in 1998 as a post-conflict society, directly in the wake of that conflict, and our particular circumstances now, probably have ad adapted and, and changed slightly in that the North is still a place where rights for LGBT people were not awarded or, or not secured by our government here in the North. So we have a particular set of circumstances as a part of these islands that didn't legislate independently for marriage equality. Westminster had to do that and had to enforce that right in the North because there were members of our government that wouldn't agree to it. And so I think, would you, would you look at that as a particular circumstance and, and as something you know particular to the North within, within the UK and Ireland or these islands? Um, and looking at, at that further than that, other social rights that, that haven't been enacted here and the, the right that at that time you realised for gay people not to be criminalised because of who they were. We, we have people now who are trans who can't access healthcare that in terms of the law they're supposed to be entitled to, but that again hasn't been realised. That means that they're at a rights deficit. So I, I wonder if you would comment on that. Um, right. Those are key, key areas. But they exemplify in many ways the problems of writing a very precise text because whenever the convention, for example, was written in 1940s, trans rights were unimaginable and, and gay rights were pretty well uh, unlikely to ever advance and matters changed drastically over the years and, and things changed. So I, I think there's a problem with writing a very clear text in your, in your words. Um, you can certainly make it easy to understand and, and, and coherent, but um, the history of, of law is the history of accretion, of things being added to to uh, acts and parliamentary impressions of things, and, and gradually things can change almost out of, out of, uh, out of um, any sense of what they used to be. So I would say that that, that isn't necessarily something that can be um, achieved or, or, or put organized in any sense. And if you had it too clear, you know, you couldn't modernize it. That's that's a big problem. Um, as to the particular circumstances, LGBT, uh, and particularly in the T question today, um, marriage equality, as you say, was uh, held up by the failure to agree at Stormont. But that was nothing new. There's been failure to agree at Stormont about gay rights going back to the early 70s. Um, and it took you know, particular MPs at, at Westminster, for example, Montgomery Hyde, who was a unionist MP in North Belfast to advance the issue there. 
these things just take, do take time uh, uh, and um, they move very quickly sometimes. As I mentioned in my paper, abortion was unspoken of 10 years ago. The Bill of Rights Forum wouldn't even address the question. You know, people who are now regard abortion as a human right said 10 years ago it, it couldn't be addressed. So you have all all these problems. It's a question of really using in any campaign, using all the um, all the forums that are available, be it Parliament, be it the courts, uh, be it media, argumentation and so on. No one is going to be predominant uh, and all are very important. And, you know, I used to think, you know, today, I'd, for my for someone of my age, a day passes in a flash in in. in when I was starting this process on gay rights, you know, a day took a year to pass. So for me, in 1974, when we started that campaign, the decriminalization was seven years old in England, which is next to nothing in, in modern, my terms nowadays, but for, for me then was colossal. And that's always the way with young people that they um, they do, they're impatient and understandably so. And But at the same time, you have to take account of, of older people as well. Thank you. You know, I, I suppose following on from that, because you've referred there and rightly so to to a unionist MP that that had an impact on that particular issue. And I think that's something, you know, you refer in your paper to um, sort of unionist opposition to a Bill of Rights. And I think that maybe oversimplifies uh, the situation. I, I, I get frustrated a lot with the, the narrative that's peddled around politics in the North that I find that, you know, everything is between, you know, it's it's an argument between unionists and nationalists when actually, you know, there are nationalists with different views on this issue, just as there are unionists with different views on this issue and, and different ends of the spectrum, just because you align yourself with a particular, um, with, a, with a particular state, if you want to use that language on the constitutional issue, doesn't mean that you're right wing or left wing sort of naturally flowing from that. And so I, I think that there there is room there for us to have, you know, when we're having a conversation about rights, to not exclude anyone and to bear in mind that different people have different perspectives on, on all of these issues. And that's why when we talk about the particular circumstances, I, I find that so um, important that, you know, we're, we're bearing in mind that the North and a lot of these rights issues is being held back because people either don't properly understand or something doesn't impact upon them. And you know, you're, you yourself probably having that personal experience, that's what drove you to get active on that issue. And I feel like we should all be representatives for the people within our community who are at a rates deficit, regardless of whether or not that particularly impacts on us personally. And, and you know, as, as I suppose as politicians and as public representatives that are elected to, to help people that are in our constituencies, there's a, there's an onus of responsibility on us, and I think that's important to remember when we're having this conversation. Well, true. The particular circumstances do keep changing, and um, but they were written into the the Belfast Agreement, which started this immediate process of, of a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland, and they were very, as I mentioned in the written document, they're very precise, really, and, and and narrow. So obviously, circumstances keep changing. Um, you know, the whole COVID uh, area of restrictions in relation to COVID is colossal in many ways, um, hardly discussed and, and entirely novel. So, you know, things will change and, uh, and um, are bound to change. But 
the particular circumstances that you mentioned there, the particular circumstances in Northern Ireland and, and many current issues. No, maybe I'm 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 out of touch, but I don't see that many particular circumstances for Northern Ireland, apart from you know redistribution of resources and and decisions on ex, on on expenditure, um, and by and large, and particularly since abortion and gay marriage were legalised only this only a year ago, in effect, um, that the the huge issues that have divided people for decades in Northern Ireland and what are called moral issues that are hinged to, in many cases to people's religious beliefs. Uh, legislation has taken effect, um, and the change has been made. And and you know, there is there isn't that much now left in the in those areas anyway. There's the huge, enormous areas of socio-economic rights uh, uh, and such like. But you know, by and large, we have advanced to the position we're in today, which is quite reasonable in European terms. Yeah, I, I mean, following off of that, I think. Well, to take your point, there's still if you if you spoke to sort of children's campaigners, if you spoke to different people involved in rural and regional groups across the north, we can still see the impact of you know obviously the the conflict arose out of a uh, of a of a period of time when one community were discriminated against as as a as a government policy, and there are still hangers on as a result of that. We still have you know we still have regional imbalance in terms of services provision in terms of even road and rail infrastructure we we still see that in terms of educational attainment we see it in particular areas around housing and distribution of housing and particularly I suppose in, in urban areas I, I I don't think that 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 is completely gone away with but I just think it's important when we're talking about these circumstances and when we're talking about creating the Bill of Rights that we bring in to bear the, the things that have adapted and changed and that are impacting on more than just nationalist or unionist communities in the north in 2021. Well, you're right, but I think in many areas, you're talking socioeconomic there and rural, urban, um, regional differences. Uh, those will go on forever in many respects. And I don't think a Bill of Rights can address them in any useful way, uh, as I mentioned on, on several points. Um, you know, the attainment in, in school levels, is, it's common to certain areas, in, in particularly in Belfast. But just getting a judge to say that uh, attainment should be equalised isn't really going to advance the, the, the matter very significantly, as there's so, ma so many factors involved in uh, schools, in attainment, in, 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 in location of schools, in teachers, who can be a teacher, who can't be. You know that, as you know from your, your own experience in the assembly, there you know if you have to deal with the bills going through, even the minor, most minor of bills has got incredible complexity and uh, various aspects have to be taken account of that you just wouldn't have imagined when you started off probably. So again, I'm just saying these are big and serious issues, um, and they are not entirely unionist nationalist, but by and large, they uh, there's a unionist nationalist element to almost all everything. As you'd expect, because politics is about, well, effectively, politics is about redistribution of resources, and 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 that matters to different people in different areas. So, same same position really applies. Um, it's if we're dealing with individual rights, we've achieved a lot. If we're dealing with collective rights, if you can call them rights, um, that's a never-ending. Uh, 
stream of options and different decisions which you can decide to make the, the remit of judges. And I do accept that, you know, just to, if you have a Bill of Rights, you do have to create an atmosphere, which maybe people take account of before it ever gets near a court, and that is important. Um, but otherwise, uh, I just don't see it, it advancing matters that significantly. Thanks, Jeffrey. I, that's sort of, I suppose that sort of sums it up for me when you talk, the last point that you made there, you know, I think of the Bill of Rights almost as an accountability measure and for something to strive towards that, you know, politicians in the future would have that in the back of their mind, that they have to meet certain requirements, um, almost like what we have in terms of Section 75, but with more weight behind it, I suppose. And even when you're talking there about attainment, obviously, you'll see, depending on, you know, the socioeconomic factors in a particular area, and that that, that will lead to you know, how, how uh, children and young people perform in school and in terms of employment and all of that. But look, that, that's that's it for me. I'm going to pass to, unless you want to comment, I'm going to pass to, to Mike as the vice chair. Chair, thank you very much. Um, actually, before I engage with Jeff, I'm just going to declare uh, that Jeff has been very helpful to me in drawing up a private member's bill, uh, reforming the law of defamation, which I hope to introduce in this, this mandate. I don't think it's a conflict of interest, Chair, but if you do, shout. No, not at all. Wheel away. Okay. Um, Jeff, thanks for, for your engagement. Um, just to pick up on, on the Chair's point about, you know, unionists versus nationalists and not being homogenous, do you think this has got something to do with, with the psyche of unionism or nationalism or their philosophy? Or is it more about a majority view versus a minority view? Oh, I'm still seeing you, Chair. Yeah, I'm thinking, have we lost Jeffrey? Don't we? Oh, no. Am I back? You're back. Oh, good. Well, yeah, it's, it's a, I'm very pleased to hear that uh, decision you've made about introducing a defamation bill. I think that's really important. It is one of the lacks in this society that we haven't got enough freedom of the press. Um. Unionist versus nationalist, there are cultural differences that bring about the distinctions. I think, and I've argued that the main one in many ways is, is uh, unionism is about the status quo, upholding the status quo. Nationalism is about changing the status quo. And for those reasons, um, people adopt different views because they can't uh, allow things to change, and it's very difficult for unions in many ways to change. Um, so yes, there are cultural differences. I'm, I'm I'm well aware of them, and that's why we can't in many ways get, get things agreed in advance. But as the demographics change, should unionism's view on the Bill of Rights change? Well, not for that reason. Uh, I do think there is a new demographic in, in many ways, the, uh, the Northern Irish group, which is the central group, if you want to call it that, people who, who think that the age-old dispute is, if, if not over, at least has been shelved. And that's just very, it's, it's, it's a bit like what happened in the 1960s when you and, well, I was growing up, maybe you're a bit later than me, but uh, 
the democratic everything is ultimately decided by demographics. That doesn't mean you, you things things you can avoid them. Or you, or you can well, basically, ethnic disputes are never resolved. They don't go away. They can only be resolved by emigration or liquidation. So you, this dispute will go on ad infinitum. Um, you get odd, odd places like Alsace Lorraine, where such a dispute has been subsumed into Europe, and that obviously that's no longer an option here. But isn't there an argument that the best way to maintain the status quo, which you identify as unionist subjective, is to make sure the maximum number of people living in Northern Ireland enjoy the maximum level of, of comfort uh, and well-being and, and sense of being recognized? And on that basis, perhaps conceding, if you like, a Bill of Rights adds to making people so content with Northern Ireland, they don't want to see change. Well, you know that, that that there's a certain essence of truth in that. Though I think most people's contentment is is uh, advanced through eco economic progress rather than any particular rights for Northern Ireland, of which I, I have to say, as I've said already, there are increasingly few of them that are distinctively Northern Irish. Um, so in that sense, but the notion of it's, it's the age-old notion, and it's the NIO's notion very much, probably for 100 years, is to try and draw people together in some sort of unity and concede to the harder demands of, of, of particularly growing minorities. Um, that's fine up to a point, but ultimately you hit the problem of a reverse majoritarianism or imminent reverse majoritarianism and I, I see that, in fact, in the university law schools where the unionist position has almost disappeared or is silenced, and only one view comes out now in terms of transitional justice or human rights. Um, so as soon as one, as soon as majority loses its, its sense of majority, it's replaced by somebody becoming a majority, and then maybe that's just a fact of life. I think at the beginning, Jeff, you, you described yourself as a Bill of Rights skeptic. So could you describe a Bill of Rights that you could live with? Uh, well, certainly one that was agreed, and agreed by a significant majority or an, a suitable majority. There, were, there have been a few areas, and way, way back in the Bill of Rights forum and before, there were the particular circumstances that some people were advancing that were special to Northern Ireland were, were things like parading and, and segregated education and uh, language rights. Now, all, all those three have been addressed in different ways since then or during that period. Um, well, parading wasn't accepted as a significant right by the Bill of Rights Forum. Um, and I think particularly the Alliance Party uh, and Bryce Dixon and Tom Haddon have continue to advance that notion that those are sort of little, very specific areas that could be uh, advanced in a Bill of Rights. So in that, in that sense, if one of, of a significantly limited essence came about, it, it could be lived with, or I, I would appreciate, approve of it or appreciate it. But 
Mr. Chairman, as it pointed out in the in the convention, the Framework Minority Convention in the Council of Europe, we have lang language rights relatively well protected, and of course the Assembly is going to be debating and discussing uh, language bill in, in the next period of time. So it's not an issue that has gone away or requires a bill to to be adjudged. Okay, final question, Jeffrey. In, in terms of how a Bill of Rights may be written up. You seem to be at odds with the likes of Sir Declan Morgan, the Lord Chief Justice, who has put a focus on the granularity, the importance of the granularity of a Bill of Rights. Uh, you, you, you seem to be going the other way. Well, I have to say I'm a little bit um, under underknowledged on what granularity really means. Uh, so. Could you explain it to me first? I think it's a modern phrase for really, really detailed. Right. Well, as I say, I think a lot of people think, you know, sweeping um, elegant phrases is one way of dealing with a Bill of Rights. You know, like if you think of something like the United States Constitution, it uh, started off life as being relatively brief, but well written and uh, uh, dealt with only a limited number of issues to start with. Um, I think if you go into granularity, that's legislation goes into granularity, all the, the blow by blow repeal of various 14th century acts or, or transition arrangements, you name it. Uh, any bill, I think, the shorter and, and briefer, the better. Well, okay. I appreciate your engagement with us. Thank you very much. And thank you, Chair. Okay, Mike, I know that we have got Carl, then Paula, then Mark indicating, so I haven't got anyone else indicating, and I see Michelle has joined the call. Christopher is now indicating as well, so I'll add him to the list. So, Carl, if you want to go ahead. Okay, thank you, Chair. Thank you, Jeff, for your written uh, presentation to the committee and indeed your appearance today. It's very much appreciated. Um, not surprising, there's a lot I disagree with. Um, and I say that in in terms of because there has been, in my opinion, and indeed my own personal experience, a denial of rights, then what happens is people go to the court. Um, I know Mick, I think it was last week, the week before, referred to judicial activists. I don't know what his interpretation of that is. But it was because, you know, people went to court because either there was agreement to do certain things which would have improved the rights of people and then they were voted against and then they were denied. So um, that's, that's that. But the issue for me is um, I'd just like you to discuss a bit more around when your premise is nothing much has changed or there's a lot changed and there's nothing much left in terms of social and economic rights. Even just to consider, for example, um, you know, someone living in North Belfast on the housing waiting list for years, they're going to they're going to be in that housing waiting list a lot longer than anywhere else. That's Equality Commission's own findings, um, and then there is the ability to block social housing simply because there's a perception that people moving into those houses are from a Catholic background. So that's a denial of rights. And then the other aspect of it is that in your submission, you mentioned Owen Patterson 
saying things or actually said something like, you know, the British government couldn't make any further progress on the issue without consensus. So, you know, it's almost consensus versus rights. So I just wanted your own views on that because you, you actually included that last, that latter piece in your submission, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Carol, for that. Um, judicial activism is, uh, is a reality and it's happening day and daily down the courts. I think somebody, one witness talked, somewhere walked, talked of 300 judicial reviews every year in Belfast alone, uh, many of them probably on rights issues or, or certainly on discrimination issues. Uh, so there is activity in that department and, and it's ongoing and, and considerable amount of things have been brought about through judicial action uh, locally, let alone uh, in Strasbourg. So I don't rule out that as a fact of life and it's going to continue whether we have a bill or not. It may be more, it may, may become more um, busy if we had a bill of rights, that's maybe true. Uh, you talk a lot about um, discrimination in particular, say in North Belfast, uh, in housing and uh, those that is a political issue in many respects but there are you know there are discrimination laws there's equality laws on on discrimination which are, are much used by people um there's section 75 and all the uh, proofing of legislation and, and uh, administrative actions to ensure that they are within the uh, the rules and within the the current laws on on equality and discrimination so Again, I say those things can be uh, addressed, those things can be challenged where, where there's a failure to do what you think is right. But that doesn't necessarily, uh, if it's a question of resources at the end of the day, and housing is a huge example of that, you can't sort of just invent resources. They either have to be taken from somebody else or reprioritization of, of existing expenditure. and. Uh, for all those reasons, I just don't think a Bill of Rights would solve would solve that. You know, the um, issue of North Belfast housing. I, I'm not um, I'm not from North Belfast, though I've lived in it. Um, I, I well recognise that there are boundary issues and, and, and territorial issues that have been frozen over the set, over the decades, and and maybe they should be uh, addressed in, in terms of uh, either administrative or judicial action. But it won't, in a sense build more houses and we're, we're in dire need. Of all the things that we need, we're in need of good and better and more housing. Um, we only have to realise that uh, the numbers of people in rented housing, which is often low, lower grade than, than domestic housing, ordinary domestic housing, is is growing. Uh, we, we, were, we have a, a thousand Syrian refugees, which, you know, in itself just has been uh, affected without bringing in the three or four hundred extra houses that would be required to to house them. So I, I certainly would approve of reprioritization on, on, of expenditure toward housing, if nothing else. Um, so I'm with you on that much. But um, that, again, it's a political decision of, of within that executive and requires maybe more focus. And Jeff, yeah, thank you for that. Um, but the fact that even already late, um, the right to respect for private and family life. When that's been breached regarding housing, then there is an issue. And um, you'll appreciate you were once a judicial activist yourself because your rights were denied. In fact, you were criminalised. 
and many others like you. Um, and completely wrong. And thanks to your own action, you've changed a law and blazed the trail for many people. So I just want to put that appreciation on the record. Thanks. But the issue for me, Jeff, is that people go to court because there's political failure. And there's political failure because people ignore things like equality and human rights legislation. And the purpose is to bring a bill forward so everybody, I think it's maybe it's not the point it might make, makes, but if there is a bill of rights, then it's a bill of rights for everyone. It's a set of laws and protection for everyone, regardless how you vote or who you love. So um, that's, that's the reason for that. But the issue is in terms of what do you do if you can't get a consensus and there's still a denial of rights? And then my last point, and I'll finish on this, Chair, is that just a wee bit concerned around the equity versus equality argument. Because, you know, in many senses, um, I, I, well, I explain my own experience from being in the Assembly in 2007, that if, for example, you have a programme for government that looks at address and objective need and inequality and that's met and then someone else kicks up and then in order to make the thing right there's this um, false balance put in which is equity so if you get to I get to regardless if you need that to so I, I would just you know want to put that in the record I'm not saying that you said that but when I hear equity and I hear equality in the same breath I do get nervous but again Jeff appreciation for all your activism and for your um, submission today. Thank you. Uh, thanks again, Carol. That was very kind of you to say that. Um, on the equity aspect, um, you know, having been in City Hall uh, until recently, uh, of, of all the things, the two things st stood out for me more, more than anything from being a councillor, and I, they were unexpected. One was just the sheer territoriality of, of the council. You know, it, it, you know, literally every pound, every inch was fought over, which is politics in some in one way, but at the same time, is pretty uh, revealing in in other ways. And I mean, the money, the city hall monies were were relatively minor in in in, in terms of what the assembly has to pay spend. Um, and so, in that respect, it's a problem. Um, and you know, it one for you, one for me was very much the the watchword down City Hall, and every party played it pretty pretty well. Every party played it most of the time, um, and I think that's just a, again a reality of, of politics in 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 a divided society. But then all societies are divided, if not on religion or nationality or ethnicity or class in particular. Um, and I'll just reiterate. I, I, obviously, I was a judicial activist and maybe still am to some degree, but um, you know, nine tenths of decisions should should be made in the assembly or in Westminster or somewhere like that um, through their democratically um, elected representatives. So I think um, rights and ju judicial decision making is a minority pursuit that. Know, it should maybe take up five percent of decision making, or maybe you would want ten percent, but it's still going to always be a considerably a, a lower level the, than the, the sheer reality of um, Stormont or or Westminster. And of course, 
changing laws and changing, let alone changing attitudes, takes a long time. Um, and it takes a lot of work. And I know you're involved in that. Thanks. Carl, is that your head you want back in? That's you. Paula, I think you were next. Yes, thank you, um, Chair, and, and thank you, Jeff. Good to see you at um, committee. Um, I'm just wondering around um, a lot of the conversation has been very much focused on the sort of one for you, one for me, nationalist versus unionism. And I'm just wondering how much you think that a Bill of Rights could actually go uh, in some way of trying to sort of push those um, sort of divisions further on the agenda and make us look more towards um, more centrist, right-left politics in terms of how we approach um, government policy here? Uh, thanks, Paula. It's always going to be there. Uh, government policy is going to be decided on, on for many reasons on in, in many different ways. Um, and, and rights are... Rights really... When it comes to judicial involvement in rights, you're talking about failures in politics. Something has gone wrong somewhere. And not a lot of things are going right in politics in, in Northern Ireland. Um, a lot of decisions are made which don't involve a great deal of squawking or, or, or rage, but obviously a, a proportion uh, are big issues. So as I, as I said to Carl, I think... Um, you're talking about a low, a small proportion of decision making are involved in in and around rights because uh, since the troubles and since the civil rights movement, for example, you know there's been a huge structure developed in terms and maybe stronger in Northern Ireland than elsewhere in terms of commissions. Um, I can think of half a dozen which where where decisions are made to ensure uh, ensuring that. Um, you know, things don't get out of hand, that the majority doesn't misbehave or um, doesn't overdo things. And the world has changed in that respect. And I think we're, we're really, we're, we're not out of the woods by any means in that sense, and maybe never will be. But the fact of the matter is that if you are uh, dealt a hard deal by government or, or even to some degree others, you can achieve change. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm just going to pick up on Dermot Nesbitt when he came before committee. He was uh, very much talking about the Council of Europe's framework convention for the protection of national minorities. And I think you touched on it a bit there, Jeff, around you know the change in demography here in Northern Ireland and that I think everybody's a minority. And I'm just wondering what your views are on that framework convention. Well, um, Dermot's an incredibly um, knowledgeable person on it and Perhaps sadly, not many other people take 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 note of it or, or take take uh, advantage of the of the rights that are guaranteed within it. It is actually, and I, I was surprised to read again. I had read it some time before. Just how significantly it is based on the re respect for existing frontiers, for example, um, territorial integrity of states, and it was obviously written at a time when the Fra Franco-German dispute still was strong, strongly in people's minds, you know, Alsace-Lorraine, uh, the biggest the territorial dispute that brought us the Second World War, if not indeed the First World War, um, and that was resolved. Uh, and the intention of the drafters of the framework was to ensure that um, 
future disputes could be tempered by uh, international uh, protocols and treaties. And I think in many respects they have been. There's still lingering disputes in in, in the Alps between Austria and Italy and um, in, in Finland between the uh, indigenous populations and, and the Nordic peoples. Um, but it is a, a working document. And I imagine, again, the importance of these documents is, is often not in their enforcement, but in their the, the fact of their um, coming into existence and being a, a, a guide and a watchword for people, uh, all people, and, and the administrators in particular who, who make decisions. Okay, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Chair. Okay, Paula, we have Mark Durkin next. Thank you, Chair, and uh, thank you for that, Jeff. It was uh, very interesting. I just want to flag one wee thing up there. When you spoke of that sort of one for me, one for you type politics, and then uh, Paula came in and says, yeah, we, we see a lot of that between nationalism and unionism. Well, your reference wasn't that more in terms of like, where you have certain blocks of power or, or two large parties with conflicting views on many policy areas. And, and, and this transactional approach isn't based on the fact that one of those blocks is nationalist and one unionist. Well, it I was talking from my experience in council, Mark, um, and that was that was what I noticed um, in an odd way. I mean, I'm not being critical of um, various parties. I was in a, a second-level party, um, and the, actually, and, and though I fought quite often with the Alliance Party, I have to say that when it came to one for me, one for you, uh, they were unusually particular in trying to ensure that it wasn't squandered, the monies or resources that were being allocated that way. So there, there is a centrist position. And one for me, one for you, but you're right, it could happen in any surroundings. It's called dealing, I suppose, and it's compromising as well. And this, you know, every amazing, if you just think of the, the in, involvement in, in, for example, the Brexit withdrawal treaty, you know, the, the acres of compromises and deals that must have been made between um, Michel Barnier and uh, David Frost. Uh, uh, and you, you yourself, probably in, in, in the Assembly and in, in ministries and politics, just know how much dealing and, and compromising and uh, offerings are being made by both sides. And that, In some respects, that's, that's reality. But in the City Council, it was so plainly territorial that it stood out. Okay, no, I just wanted to establish that it wasn't just over constitutional outlook or, or, or issues. The way Paula presented that was as if nationalism and unionism were at fault for that, as ideologies or approaches were at fault for that approach. When, when, when it's just politics, really. Uh, Jeffrey, you'd spoken about the danger of judge-made law, and I presume you're not referring to the common law system altogether, because when it comes to the application of human rights law, uh, despite accusations, and we've discussed these in previous sessions, of the UK government of, of overreach, overreach by the judiciary, there are also plenty of examples, indeed recent ones, of the judiciary known where that fine line between public policy and legal application is drawn. And, and well, like that's, I suppose, I spoke of recent cases. I know there's been 
ones on assisted suicide, abortion, as been mentioned, and, and then the rights of transgender people as well? Uh, well, historically, I mean, I'm long enough to recall when lawyers and judges were ex essentially conservative, in the words of Rice Dixon, rich old men. Um, but they aren't anymore, um, and, and the world has changed in that respect. Um, there is, far from there being just a, a reluctance, of, a rather mindless reluctance to to be significant in, in judgments, it's, it's almost the opposite, as you mentioned there, in terms of the Supreme Court um, over Brexit. But I'm thinking in terms here of um, an issue like the incinerator in, in Molusk, um, where the judges have completely overturned uh, it, policies that were well argued in many respects, but, you know, just hadn't hadn't made the, the cut entirely in, in terms of dotting all the T's and or I's and crossing the T's. So, yes, it's it's there is a danger of overreach, but there's also a, and I'm saying there was a danger of underreach in the past. So maybe it, it'll balance out for a while, though everything changes in this world. I'd argue the courts definitely got it right in the example that you've cited there. Anyway, Jeff, now uh, you said before, and uh, you, you, you glossed over today, but that you don't believe that all party consensus can be reached on a, a Bill of Rights here. I don't know, has today's evidence session thus far, you know, has that done anything to change your view? Well, I know that there are, there are several views in the committee, um, and I think whatever you end up with doing, it'll have to be narrower than than some people want and broader than what others want. If you if you put together an agreed position, but if you think uh, and you think of your next witness, Daphne Trimble, she was in the minority on the Human Rights Commission when it came to an all singing, all dancing bill that was put forward and. She was right in the sense that it didn't advance at all. Um, so I do think I'm, I'm a bit of a minimalist these days and particularly more so a, a gradualist. So, you know, start start with the very... If, if somebody, I think, can't remember who said it, but if somebody, if they had a Bill of Rights with one right in it and got it through 15 years ago, uh, you'd be in a stronger position about adding to it. But uh, by asking for the... For the world, you end up with nothing. That's the problem. No, and, and just finally, Jeff, you had helpfully shared the opinion of Neil Forrest, and who stated, and in my view, reasonably and correctly, that we must abide by the terms of the agreement as they are, and not as we might wish them to be. But in that respect, where is the precondition in the agreement for all-party consensus for a bill of rights? Well, as the agreement was written, it was it was in fact relatively limited, and I could see you can see you can imagine the decision making process in the in the days before the text was agreed. The bits were added, bits were taken out. Um, but the it was at its simplest uh, you know, a mixture of admonition that that rights be respected into the new in the new circumstances, and that the possibility of a Bill of Rights was to be looked at by the Human Rights Commission, uh, and it had to be within that range, a relatively limited range of particular circumstances, and linked to 
the two communities, not all the communities, but the two communities, i.e. unions and nationals, Catholic and Protestant, uh, insofar as they are um, synonymous, uh, and that it had to be within that range uh, of mutual respect and parity of esteem. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, those are limited areas that you can put into text for a Bill of Rights. Uh, 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 and in that sense, Neil Farage was absolutely right. It was just a pity all along. Uh, I don't want to be too nasty about it, but, uh, you know, certain people who were involved in this had the ability to to, to, to temper things, to tone things down, to, to try and find a way through in a centre position and... You know, it it failed and, and they failed. No, so it's just a, such a consensus hasn't always been a prerequisite for, for things, if you think of the Policing Act even, which touches on those issues as well. Well, obviously, they're, they're, they're big moments, like the Belfast Agreement, where consensus wasn't um, necessarily agreed. I mean, they, I... I Half of unionism had nothing to do with the Good Friday Agreement, and Sinn Féin didn't sign it or endorse it at the time, but uh, eventually came around to accepting it. So there are those moments when consensus goes out the window, but I think in, in, in day-to-day terms, you can't really uh, advance matters without consensus or else the whole thing goes upside down. No, no, I think it's important. It's something we should all all strive for and, and towards. But no, thanks for that, Jeff. Sure. I'm not unmuted. Christopher? Can you hear me okay? Hello, Jeff. Um, I think, actually, Jeff, in terms of your, your point about the council, um, during my, my time at Belfast Council, I actually managed... Um, to encapsulate the sort of disputes you were describing in one person. Because for the first eight years that I was in the council, I represented uh, Lagan Bank, which was an inner city uh, area. And I would go into meetings and I would bang the table and I would say, we're one of the most deprived parts of the city. Uh, we demand more funding. And then after the 2014 council election, when I represented Balmoral, I would go in and I would bang the table and I would say, the outer suburbs of the city get nothing, we demand more funding. Uh, so I think these were always ultimately geographical rather than necessarily unionist versus nationalist disputes in, in City Hall. It was always, and actually, I mean, yourself, Paula, myself, I think can all attest to the fact there were 10 of us elected, 10 councillors elected from the south of the city and 99 times out of 100, the 10 from the south of the city would be on the same page saying, the south of the city demands more resources, where are they? So I think it was very much a, I think you're right, it was territorial in the sense of being constituency-led. Um, one of the issues that I've, I've raised consistently about this, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, when you go down the pathway, and you mentioned the American Constitution, you go down the pathway of a written constitution, and if some see this as going in that direction, you're then going to require particular judges or judges to interpret said constitution. Do you see in that the danger of the development of what exists in America, whereby basically judges before appointment 
are screened to see whether or not they're suitably conservative or suitably liberal to be on the court that in interprets the constitution. Right. Okay, right. Uh, good to see you, Christopher. Uh, you. Looking well. <laughs> uh, you you bring up the city council issues, the constituency, as and geographical issues, and it's true to some extent. I mean, well, in in truth, the south of the city was always underfunded compared to the rest of it for quite right. reasons, quite right. and and will continue to be, I imagine. Um, so, but I was talking more those classic issues of, um, if you recall, um, uh, bonfire diversionary funding or other um, a museum funding, which were very clearly and coherently one for you, one for us. Um, but I do recall also, I think my only significant achievement in council was to get uh, an agreement on a blitz memorial, which was something that didn't, uh, wasn't a one for you, one for us thing, or um, it was about commemorating a significant event in the city's history that affected everyone. Um, on the question of judges, I think if you looked at the US Supreme Court, I mean, the really vicious uh, appointments process hearings, in particular on, on the guy whose name escapes me, but then, um, and the very brief one on the last person selected by Trump. Um, that is a danger. Um, what is the current position? It's done. It used to be done basically. Judge, judges chose other judges or chose their their barrister uh, compatriots, whoever was they felt best, and worked in many cases. But it ensured that everything was repeated. Repeated. There was very little ability to change things because the same people were reselected. But you know, you've got a judicial appointments commission, and you ask yourself, well, who appoints the judicial appointments commission? And it tends to be quite probably the same people who were going to appoint the judges in the previous iteration. Uh, uh, and so you're you're never going to get a system that's perfect. Um, and then, even if it's very partisan, the appointment in America, as it is, those judges once appointed, and they tend to be sensible lawyers to start with, with some track record. Um, they don't do as they're expected to do. I think already the last two Trump appointments on certain cases have, have uh, gone with the, what you might call the liberal or the non-conservative uh, group on the, on the Supreme Court and haven't, they've formed a new majority in a sense. I think you can always rely on the common sense of judges in that respect. Okay. Um, I've noticed in, during the committee just twice now uh, the point has been made and duly noted about consensus uh, not being as important on this issue as um, perhaps on others. And you've obviously spoken to that. Um, do you agree with me? It would be absolutely disastrous for the public and for public support for any Bill of Rights if it started off from a position of being imposed by, oh, for argument's sake, you know, two nationalist parties and a centrist one? Well, I think, uh, obviously, if it was imposed, it would, would start in a very uh, difficult place. But you know, it's not as if, in reality, a Bill of Rights will, or would um, be legislated through Westminster. And I can't see the 
the government there tolerating a, an imposed Bill of Rights um, that didn't have at least a significant cross-community support. So I, I don't think it's a problem that we're going to have to face. Thank you. Oh, Jimmy, I'm on mute again. Sorry. I was just, Christopher, that's you. I'm, I haven't seen a hand going up from Michelle. Um, so I don't know if she wants to ask anything. I'm... No, I'm happy enough. Thank you. That was, thank you very much for the presentation. That was very interesting. Brilliant. Okay, well, Jeffrey, that's that's you excused. We've put you oh, through good. the pieces there. <laughs> it was quite an extensive uh, interchange, but thank you very much again for for your time, for your presentation, and for joining us this afternoon. And uh, we'll we'll let you go now and move on uh, to the next item on our agenda. Okay, thanks. Very very comprehensive indeed. See you then. Cheers. Thank you. So, members, we can now move on. To the next um, item on our car for this afternoon, we have now got a briefing by Lady Daphne Trimble, um, and Lady Trimble has provided a briefing as well as her note of dissent um, from 2008, um, which members might want to refer to. So I believe she is now on the call. Lady Trimble, welcome this afternoon. Thank you very much for your invitation to give evidence to your committee, and that I listened with great interest to my old friend Jeffrey Dudgeon's uh, presentation and questioning by the committee. So it's it's good to to be here, and and I'm here because I was a member of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, which presented its report to the Secretary of State way back in 2008. And of course, I was one of two dissenting members, and I'll come back to that issue. But before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about the human rights context. So prior to 1998, Britain had been a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights for a good many years. And that was the human rights background against which the Belfast Agreement was agreed in 1998. And I mean, I know from bitter personal experience and more than most, just how difficult it was to achieve that agreement. And, and I know to how much discussion went into every single clause and every single word of that agreement. But the agreement was achieved and it contained the provisions for the creation of the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission and it charged it with the obligation and, and I make no apology for reading this out in full because it's important uh, for your own deliberations to advise on the scope for defining in Westminster legislation rights supplementary to those in the European Convention on Human Rights, to reflect the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland, drawing as appropriate on international instruments and experience. These additional rights to reflect the principles of mutual respect for the identity and ethos of both communities and parity of esteem and taken together with the European Convention on Human Rights to constitute a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland. Now, the human rights discussion in Northern Ireland didn't start with the Belfast Agreement. Before that, we had the Standing Advisory Commission on Human Rights. It presented annual reports on human rights. And I know you've heard from one of its members, my former colleague, Dermot Nesbitt, and uh, uh, Dermot being referred to earlier. Uh, in 1988, my husband was a member of a working group 
which published a report on human rights and responsibilities in Britain and Ireland. And, uh, you know, that was way back in 1988. And incidentally, one of their recommendations was to incorporate the European Convention on Human Rights into domestic law. And of course, that happened in 1998, so 10 years later, shortly after the Belfast Agreement with the Human Rights Act. Now, I mentioned that sequence of events, which I'm sure you're all very familiar with, just to indicate that human rights have a long history in the Northern Ireland con uh, context. And they're not the preserve of one community to assert their rights over the other community. The Human Rights Commission spent 10 years on the Bill of Rights work. The first set of commissioners under Bryce Dixon, who has given evidence to you, they all resigned in disagreement. And I know that Bryce has modified his views uh, since uh, leaving the commission. And the second set of commissioners, which I joined in 2007, produced a report in 2008, uh, which I dissented from and which was totally rejected by the government. The government agreed with my view. So th there's nothing easy when it comes to human rights. And I really do not envy you your task. And I listened to Professor Colin Harvey, who was a member of that commission with me, and he recommended that you dust down that report. Now, that report recommended over 80 additional rights, which together with the Human Rights Act would form a Northern Ireland Bill of Rights. They included many socio-economic rights, which had nothing to do with the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland, and they don't appear in any Human Rights Act anywhere else in the UK or across Europe. And it was and it remains my view that the Human Rights Commission exceeded their remit. Had they been less ambitious in wanting to produce what some referred to, and Jeff used this phrase earlier, uh, in wanting to produce an all singing, all dancing Bill of Rights. And if they had concentrated on issues which went to the heart of our conflict, such as the victims, survivors and parading, we might have ended up with something and something rather than nothing. You know, it's a win. I mentioned healthcare in my written submission, and I'd like to just add a little to what I said in that. First, their proposals, that's the Human Rights Commission's proposals, talked about progressive realisation. Now, that's a concept that's not new to human rights activists, but it doesn't appear in any of our human rights legislation in our ju jurisdiction or across Europe. So we're a small region in Northern Ireland and the Assembly is a subordinate legislature. Is it sensible to set up an elaborate set of rights which may very well, in truth, add nothing at all to the provision of healthcare, but just give the appearance of creating a new right. So healthcare is not mentioned in the Human Rights Act or in the European Convention on Human Rights, but it's the one area in our society where the NHS giving healthcare free at the point of delivery, that's embedded in our DNA. We all consider it a right, and it is a right. And we have every confidence, I certainly have every confidence, that it will continue to be a right for generations to come. It's part of the fabric of our society. And any party that presented itself to the electorate on the basis of changing the concept of health care free at the point of delivery 
would be given short shrift by the electorate. The right to free health care is not under threat. But the NHS is under huge strain. Even before the COVID pandemic, waiting lists, particularly in Northern Ireland, were shockingly long in some disciplines. You'll know more about the length of the waiting lists than I do. But now, when we have seen the resources of the NHS having had to be diverted to caring for COVID patients and very thankfully administering vaccines. So 13 million to date. And yes, I have had my vaccine. Hooray. But we all know that people have died and will continue to die prematurely because of the unavailability of medical care, which would have been expected before the pandemic. And this is the situation that we have. If the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission's proposals were now in force, and if, for example, you take a cancer patient whose treatment has had to be delayed due to COVID, if they were to take a legal case, we'd be looking at a situation where a judge would have to decide on whether the allocation of resources by the executive was compliant with the Bill of Rights. So the judge would be drawn into deciding whether the government should, say, have taken money out of housing or the economy or wherever to put into the health budget in these exceptional times, which none of us could have predicted two years ago. You know, but this is a political judgment and it is, in my view, quite properly the domain of politicians to make these decisions. That's, what's, that's what politicians are for. Now, that's a hypothetical example and I trust that it will remain hypothetical. So I know you have taken evidence from a number of very distinguished judges and my sense from reading their evidence is that they have no desire to be drawn into the political arena. And there was one element that particularly impressed me. It was Sir Stephen Irwin's remarks and uh, he put it very well. And I'm just going to repeat what uh, a sentence or two that resonated with me. And he said, is the judge in the end to adjudicate between the competing demands for funding? We are not equipped to do that, never mind the politicisation of the judiciary. And, you know, at issue here, it's not just the politicisation of the judiciary, but the extent of the cases which would potentially be brought. So would legal aid be available? And how much extra would that cost? You're going to have to look at that. What would be the expected extra workload for the legal system? If there's no legal aid going to be available, then the points that I made in my written submission about NGOs and wealthy individuals become very relevant. And uh, this, is, this is touching on what Jeff referred to as judicial activism. And now, before I finish, I just want to say a few words about the particular circumstances of Northern Ireland. And in my view, what we need to do is here is to look back to the Belfast Agreement and the context in which the Belfast Agreement came about to discern what's meant here. So in Northern Ireland, we suffered decades of conflict. Our people were divided on ethnic, religious and political grounds. Mutual hostility led to a near boycott of the other in political, economic and social life. Now, as a simplification, of a very complex situation. And I, I thought long and hard about what words I would use there. But the agreement set out the constitutional and political arrangements as a way of living together 
and preventing continued paramilitarism. And it's that bitter division that the participants in the agreement were contemplating when they asked the Human Rights Commission to consider if there were rights which could contribute to alleviating that division. They didn't have the answers then. Uh, the Human Rights Commission didn't come up with something that could be agreed. That's now your task. It wasn't easy. If it was easy, it would have been done by now. So good luck to your committee. And I wish you very well in your deliberations. Thank you very much, Lady Trimble, for your presentation and for, for the, the oral um, presentation that you've given us just there now. Um, just following on from the question or from the point that you finished with there in terms of the particular circumstances um, and the, 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 the conflict, I suppose the conflict in the North came around as a result of both partition and of the, the state that followed in that discrimination was the order of the day and that there was systemic discrimination and denial of rights to one section of the community. And following on from that, is it not um, appropriate that as a means of dealing with that and, and born out of 1998 that we would have rights for everyone? Because obviously rights are universal and I know Christopher had referred earlier to rights being imposed by certain parties and not others, but my thing would be, my view of it would be that rights are enforced or introduced for everyone. Excuse me, excuse me, Chair, I, I need to clarify that. What I said was a Bill of Rights, the content of any potential Bill of Rights being imposed. I didn't say that I was against rights. I said no. the content of the document, and that's why we meet as a committee to consider what actually will go in at the end, because obviously the whole point of these hearings is that people have different interpretations of rights and how they're best delivered. just think that's important to put that on the record. Absolutely. I don't think that I misrepresented what you said there. You had said that a Bill of Rights being imposed, so in my view, rights being introduced would not be an imposition on anyone. It would be for the good and the benefit of the entire community, regardless of your background or political view, affiliation or, or other. Okay. Um, yeah, we already have rights. We have all the rights in the Human Rights Act, the European Convention on Human Rights. Those apply to every individual in the territory. So those rights are individual rights for every single person, whether they be nationalist, unionist, uh, whatever. And uh, that they are, the, the idea behind a Bill of Rights is that the rights should be absolutely universal for everybody, whether it be a prisoner in Mugabri, whether it be an asylum seeker, whoever they should be. And we already have a very significant amount of rights. Now, I, sp I spent quite a lot of my presentation talking about healthcare. Now, healthcare is not something that the Human Rights Act includes, but it is a right. It is enshrined in all sorts of legislation that, uh, you know, throughout, through, th if you go through uh, the Acts of Parliament of the United Kingdom, you will find that, you know, the health, National Health Service was set up uh, in, what, 1940, whatever, 1946, 40, 40, immediately post-war. And in fact, it was set up round about the same time that the uh, discussions which led to the European Convention on Human Rights came about. Now, I don't know why healthcare wasn't included, but it wasn't. 
but it is a right. There is nobody in our society who would argue that there is no right to health care. So it 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 is there as a right, but it doesn't have it's not enshrined in a bill of rights as such, but it's no less a right. So uh, something doesn't have to be enshrined in a bill of rights, which uh, in order to, to have it uh, available as a right to each individual. And in fact, if you put something into a bill of rights, the intention, I, as I understand it, would be that that should then be a foundational document that actually uh, any subsequent legislation would have to be compliant with that Bill of Rights so that uh, the concepts that go into that must be very, you know, ve you must be very, very certain and very sure that those are the concepts uh, and ideals that you want to endure for a very, very long time. Because I think the idea uh, behind your committee would be that uh, a Bill of Rights uh, which which we do have, and we do we do have a Bill of Rights in the sense that we have the Human Rights Act. But any additions to a Bill of Rights would be enduring for a very long time, and uh, would would hold uh, the Assembly and the Executive uh, to comply with those rights. Now, if you get those wrong, then how do you change those? Because you know we've been talking about additions to uh, the Human Rights Act since 1998 and we haven't come up with anything yet so you know i just think that it's 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 an extremely difficult task that you have and you have to think very very long and very carefully about what you put into that but the fact that you don't put something into a bill of rights doesn't mean that that it's not a right for people it's there in 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 other aspects of our law and uh, you know it, it's you're not you're not saying this isn't a good thing if you exclude it from a Bill of Rights. You're saying, you're just saying that we have what we have and that'll do us for now. Thank you. I suppose my response to that would be, I mean, you referred as well in your paper to um, the possible negative implications of the North ending up with more rights or a stronger Bill of Rights than what the UK or the EU have. And obviously we've just seen Brexit happening and the North is now in the position where we have fewer rights than, than we previously had in terms of the EU. Even at a, at a conversation earlier on today with, with individuals around the, the new sort of regulations around civil service posting that the British government regard everyone in the North as British by virtue of birth and in order to work for the civil service that's how an Irish person such as myself from the North would be would be able to work for the civil service because I'm regarded as British. So if I were to denounce that right, then that would remove my right to, to be able to work for the civil service. But following on from your, your example, your hypothetical, hypothetical situation that you've raised in terms of the healthcare example. So obviously, yes, the NHS uh, is, a, is a brilliant service that we have probably all availed of and I certainly have. In terms of the minute, there are people within society who in legislation have particular healthcare rights that they're not able to access. So I'm thinking of women in terms of abortion rights. The, the law changed in that last year. We still don't have uh, proper services implemented across our trusts. I'm thinking of trans individuals that aren't able to, to access services because of a, a, 
an issue with with the only clinic in the north in, in, in Brackenburn and then further on from that your particular hypothetical situation around whether or not somebody could be sued because they weren't able to access a particular service during the COVID pandemic and I think if we focus in on that if we did have healthcare as an established right would the situation be that not without proper rationale the health service could be sued but we have a situation here where we have a health minister that's returning money and underspend where we have had a year-long pandemic where travellers have been allowed onto the island where we're seeing elderly patients return from from hospitals into care homes and where we've had a lot of deaths through this pandemic would that would that allow some accountability for that i i don't actually believe that that to include healthcare in a bill of rights uh, and 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 it is something that the uh, Human Rights Commission uh, suggested would be subject to progressive realisation. And, and as I said, that's a concept that we don't have in our legal system here. So uh, it would be very, very new if anybody uh, were to bring that to court. Uh, and and, and, and it would be wholly unpredictable uh, as to what the outcome of that would be. But the issues that you've referred to about abortion and trans rights, those were resource issues. I mean, abortion is now part of the law of the land, and 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 it's up to it's up to, it's up to people like you uh, in the assembly and and your parties in the executive to to well, uh, buy those services. The, and, there is there are services, but that, that those have been implemented independently by clinicians within the trust. It's the health minister's responsibility to set in, in place a framework for those. So that is actually a political. It's not a resource issue. It's it's a political decision by the, by the minister that's prevented that thus far. Well, that's uh, that that's uh, you you're much better informed than I am on on these matters, uh, and and I would defer to you on 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 that. Uh, but uh, you know it it is it, we know that it is uh, the law of the land now, uh, as introduced by by Stella Creasy's bill, uh, and uh, and and I and I. Uh, I'm also reasonably certain that that the assembly uh, left to itself uh, would have still been debating the issue uh, had it had it been left to the assembly. Uh, it is emotive, um, and 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 uh, if you're talking in terms of rights, so you you're talking in terms of a woman's right to choice, uh, and and then you also have uh, the the opposite argument about the the rights of the unborn child. Uh, so you know their rights are always going to be in conflict with each other. Thank you very much. Um, I'm I'm going to pass now to my vice chair, Mike. Yeah, you're still there. Chair, thank, thank you very much, and Lady Trimble. Uh, good afternoon, and thank you for engaging. Just just before we begin, just to, to put on record, I think that the chair has given an analysis of previous government arrangements for Northern Ireland. Uh, I don't think that that analysis would be shared by every member of the committee, just to put that on, on record. Lady Trimble, you have a lot of publications behind you, but I'm assuming this one, <laughs> the 2008 advice, isn't necessarily what it is, is it? Well, this, this, this one indeed. <laughs> now, yes. Would, it, would I be right in assuming that, that in one sense you think it went far too far, but in another important sense, it didn't go far enough. In fact, it didn't even get off the starting line in terms of looking at issues with regard to 
mutual respect and parity of esteem. Yes, actually, uh, Mike, I think you're, you've summed up my view quite well there. Uh, it, 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 um, in a sense, the, the discussion was like a juggernaut that was already well down the road when I joined the Commission. And uh, they were well through their discussions uh, and they, they, they took the report from the Bill of Rights Forum, um, or have, have I even got that? that title right. Uh, as I get older, sometimes I forget the names of things. Um, so, it, and, and they were they, they were on a steamroller. Um, I thought that there were things that around, particularly around victims, and I know that you yourself uh, have, a, have a particular uh, uh, interest in the victim issue, as, as did I um, when I was a member of the um, the the uh, memorial committee, you know the the um, oh dear, I have I have forgotten the book, the name of it. The Northern Ireland Memorial Fund. The Northern Ireland Memorial Fund. Thank you for that. And and we did a lot of work with victims at that time, uh, and and it was good work, and it was what led to the creation of the victims commissioners, and 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 that was that was not done uh, with a view to saying that there was a right to that but it was the right thing to do and victims needed to be acknowledged uh, in the context of us coming out of out of those bitter 30 years of conflict uh, and, uh, and and those are the issues that that I thought the human rights commission should have been discussing and and we didn't really they were extremely difficult whether we would have come up with uh, with with uh, any any firm proposal, I cannot say, but we didn't really get to the point of um, you know of of, um, of discussing them. Yeah, and I think you and Pat you did tremendous work with the Memorial Fund, by the way. But in, in terms of the two thousand and eight advice, that document, I think you referenced the fact that Professor Colin Harvey said we should go back and revisit it. Uh, I think Brian Gormley from the Committee on the Administration of Justice also said, you know, that we should just lift it. Um, but, you know, it was rejected by yourself. Uh, it was rejected by the Northern Ireland office. So it takes me to the point where we say to ourselves, is something better than nothing? Do we want the sort of all singing, all dancing, as that document has been referred to? Or should we say, politics is the art of the possible. Let us cut a deal on what we can agree on. Well, that's what politics is all about. It's always been about trying to get something and uh, uh, trying to get what's achievable. And uh, that all singing, all dancing was not achievable back in 2008. I don't think it would be achievable now. Uh, I don't think it would be the right thing for Northern Ireland. But there may be something there that you could get if you work and puzzle at it uh, for for you know for for I don't know how however much longer your committee is going to sit, but you've certainly heard from a wide range of people, a really wide range, and I, and I do applaud your committee for uh, having that that range of experts. It's almost more than I heard from when I was a member of the Human Rights Commission. Like some of the names are exactly the same. Uh, Brian Gormali was involved with the Human Rights Commission. 
uh, Colin Harvey, obviously, um, and uh, there were a number of other names who, who have given evidence to you that, that, that I recognise from those days um, and, and, and that we worked with then. Uh, but uh, the number of judicial uh, witnesses that we've had has been quite impressive. Sorry, just, just, just to be clear, Lady Trimble, are you saying don't discard the 2008 advice that there, there may be good stuff in it? Well, uh, I'm not. Well, I'm not not saying that absolutely, but you can look at it. Uh, there may be some things there that uh, are relevant, but as a whole, it's far too much. 80 recommendations. I mean, Northern Ireland would become the human rights capital of the world, and we would we would have people coming here to simply to use to use our new human rights legislation. It would be it would be awful. I just I do, I, I think there may be a very small number of things, and I'm not going to specify what they would be. I would need to look at it again and put my thinking cap on. Uh, but things, things around victims, parading, the issues that divided us during the conflict, uh, those are the sort of issues that I think we should be looking at. So that answers my next question, which would have been, what could you live with? I think you've just defined it. Yes, yes, I think so. Final question, you talked about judges potentially uh, making judgment calls between various budget allocations. But it's, it's my uh, recollection that anybody was spoken to, including uh, judicial figures and, and people who are, are academics within the judicial sphere, have said that is absolutely something judges would not say was judiciable. Un unless, you know, Emma talked about health handing money back. That, I think, could only be judiciable if the reason for handing it back was to prevent the money being spent on a, a section of society in a way that might be deemed sectarian. Yeah, I don't think that judges want to uh, to make uh, the sort of decisions uh, that we've been talking about. I don't think they want to to uh, uh, to decide as between funding streams where money should be going. But that's that's what might they might be faced with having to make those sorts of decisions. I mean, a judge can only decide on the facts of a case that's presented to him or her. And uh, that's going to be, and I did refer to this in my written presentation, it's going to be your, your well-funded NGOs or your well-funded individuals who choose which cases to bring and they'll be beating their own drums. Uh, and, and, and that takes, takes decision-making further away from the political process and it, it means that the, the judges the judges can't uh, just decide, yes, health should have one pot of money, housing should have another pot of money. They will be deciding on the particular facts that come before them. And uh, it, it may lead to, to results that you don't want. Yeah, sorry, just to finish off on that point, I mean, it's my impression that a judge likes to look at the facts as presented, rather than opinions as presented, and you could find that a, an executive minister uh, was defending a decision uh, because it was their opinion that this was the best thing to do, 
rather than based on the sort of facts that judges are more comfortable with. Yes. Yes. Okay. Lady Fimble, thank you very much. Thank you, Chair. No problem. I know that Carol has her hand up, and I believe Christopher had as well. He did. Okay, so we'll let you in there. Thank you, Lady Trimble, for your presentation and indeed for some of your written evidence as well. Um, just on the last point first, um, I mean, there's a lot of speculation about the role of the judiciary, but, you know, it should be a place of last resort. And even if you look at what was in the Good Friday Agreement or, the, you know, Section 28A on an anti-poverty strategy, um, that was denied for a long time, which resulted in a judicial review being taken. And at that judicial review, even the, 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 the lead hearing um, was quite um, specific and detailed. And it did, you know, take into all considerations about things that should have happened. And once it was established that they didn't, leave was granted. But the issue I have is, um, well, first of all, um, you said you weren't be you weren't prepared to be specific about what you would keep in the 2008 report, although you did go on to mention things like victims and parading. But um, you didn't you didn't uh, provide or you didn't author a minority report. You had a note of dissent. That's correct, isn't it? That's correct. Um, yeah. That was an issue of sorry, maybe you haven't finished. But no, you're that, okay. That that was an issue that was hugely controversial at the time. Right. I wanted to put in a minority report, and uh, I was prevented from doing so. Uh, the, there, there was, there, there was a very heated meeting uh, of the Human Rights Commission, and uh, uh, the, the 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 other person who dissented was uh, uh, your former colleague Jonathan Bell. Uh, he was a, the, the other dissenting member. I do remember a meeting when uh, he and I were segregated from the rest of the commission uh, when, when matters became extremely heated. So the fact that I didn't put in a minority report was not my choice. That was the, uh, the, the chief commissioner's decision. Okay, so um, no, I remember 2008 and I remember... Um, both yourself and Jonathan the day before the report was due to be launched that just had your own press conference and a lot of this stuff's all water under the bridges to say yeah. but um, but in your note you've noted your concerns around you know moving from decision making um, to from the legislator to judiciary and I I accept that oh, well I don't accept it I'm trying to understand it because um, even if legislation's made, if, for example, um, it's blocked at the executive, which has happened, and the result is then going to court, then that's that's what happens. And even just being at one of those judicial review hearings, it was quite, it was quite um, an interrogation of why the case was going to court in the first place. So I don't think anybody now is saying. That legislation needs to be made by the judiciary. That's what the assembly's for. So I, I'm just wondering. Um, so in your view, what role would the court have um, where there has been breaches of rights um, or a perception of a breach, a breach of rights, and then 
as you mentioned, healthcare, while it isn't there, it's quite topical. But the issue is that if, for example, Mike mentioned this, you know, if there's a Bill of Rights, uh, a suite of protections written in law for everyone, then surely that's a good thing, regardless. Okay, well, th there's there's quite a lot in what you've asked me there. Yeah, sorry, so sorry, Lady <laughs> Doc, sorry, Lady Doc, <laughs> rambled on. That's that 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 that's all right. Um, I'm not arguing that judges shouldn't have a role in deciding rights. They do have, and I mean that's the whole point of a Bill of Rights that an individual whose rights have been infringed or who thinks their rights have been infringed should go to court and have their day in court and have a judge decide. I'm not arguing that that shouldn't be the case. What I'm arguing is that there are certain uh, rights which it's not appropriate for judges to decide among now and 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 this is these are the what we call the socio-economic rights that the um, uh, Human Rights Commission wanted to introduce uh, and this concept of progressive realization that's something that's that was completely new for uh, human rights law and uh, in within certainly within Europe uh, uh, the, the concept I think originated in South Africa uh, which is quite a long way away um, but we don't have it in in our legal system nor in nor anywhere in Europe to the best of my knowledge unless unless something has changed very much since the days when I was was fully fully up to speed with with these matters uh, but I don't think that that it has so I'm not arguing that judges shouldn't have a role in of course they should have a role and they do have a role and I'm not arguing that that should should be changed at all but what I am saying is is it your desire to take decision making around allocation of resources because resources are, are never going to be infinite uh, to, to take allocation of resources and put that in the hands of the judiciary uh, at the behest of whoever chooses to bring a case to them uh, that that's what I'm arguing um, and I hope that that answers your question there and I'm sorry I know you had another point as well and I've I've, I've lost it. It was just that, um, you know, you, you, you've said there's a role for the judiciary and it was just to clarify what that role is. Yeah. And then even just in terms of, you know, I still don't hear you arguing against having a Bill of Rights. It may, may not have been the Bill of Rights process that you were involved in, but the point that Mike and others have made is that if a Bill of Rights, which is a suite of protections in law, that enjoy by all citizens, then there's absolutely nothing to be afraid of, of those. No, I'm not arguing against a Bill of Rights. We have a Bill of Rights in the Human Rights Act and the European Convention on Human Rights. We have those. Those are existing rights. And, uh, you know, those are... I, I'm, I'm not arguing that anybody should take any of those away. What you're looking at... Uh, or what you're tasked to look at is whether to add anything to those rights and and what I'm saying is I'm not against an addition but you have to think very very carefully about what you should add to that uh, and the Human Rights Commission didn't come up with the right answer um, you know we've had uh, obviously the politicians way back in 1998 when they were signing the Belfast Agreement uh, 
didn't come up with an answer. They kicked it into touch to ask the Human Rights Commission to uh, to look at the problem. So there may be something around the issues such as victims and parading. And, you know, those are the two that come most to my mind. But I have no advice for you as to what way you should form those those rights or how you should phrase them. Uh, I, I just I don't know how you would do it. And, and and I appreciate that. And if you look at victims, victims have had to go to court in order to try and get some um, resolution. And there is a body there to look at parades and protests. The only kind of thing, and I'll finish on this, Chair, and I'll finish on this, um, Lady Trimble, is that I just found it astounding that two people who dissented, a whole uh, commission who were for Bill of Rights, two people dissented, and then British Secretary of State lifted that mantle up. So it was, in fact, the minority had more power than the majority. And the difficulty is that um, we don't want that happening again. So that's the position. If anything, we're here to learn lessons from the past, but also to see what we can do that will um, hopefully, I'm not convinced yet, but hopefully see the support of every political party across the board because rights for one is rights for all. But thank you, Lady Trample, I appreciate your time, I appreciate the work that you've done and your presentation today. Thank you. Yes, just on that last point, it wasn't just two commissioners who dissented, it was two commissioners, the Democratic Unionist Party, the Ulster Unionist Party, and I think the Alliance did about two thirds of that which was produced by the Bill of Rights Forum. And I served in the Bill of Rights Forum in that period, and I remember going through it thinking to myself, what on earth have I done to offend someone that I can send here? It, it was an interminable process. Christopher, um, I hear the felt the same about you. I believe you were strong. But, you know, I think, I actually, I, my first question was going to be about that, because Lady Trimble, you participated in the process, and could you talk basically what I have seen today, especially actually, what I have seen emerging is the sort of broad philosophical difference in approach in terms of I suppose I would characterise it as a maximalist and uh, a more restrained approach. And I'm just wondering, could you talk to how those differences effectively scuppered previous attempts to produce a bill of rights? Yes, Chris, I think you have hit the nail on the head as to that was the um, uh, what we faced in the Human Rights Commission. There were the maximalists who wanted the all singing, all dancing, uh, brave new world type of uh, uh, progressive realisation, socioeconomic rights. It was going to be a paradise for human rights activists. And then there was myself and Jonathan, uh, who wanted a little bit more, well, I suppose I would say a little bit more reality and a little bit more common sense to prevail. But uh, most of the, the people who were uh, presenting to the Commission were uh, the human rights activists uh, who wanted the maximalist approach. And that was the approach that the, uh, the majority uh, chose to follow and you know we had an extremely heavy workload uh, you know there, there were meeting after meeting and paper after paper and uh, it, it was 
it, 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 it was the most, the most difficult uh, body that I have ever actually served on, and I've been on a few in, in, in my time, uh, and I've gone through a few difficult, <laughs> difficult meetings in my time, uh, but uh, this, this was uh, quite difficult, and I mean, I was not able to persuade others uh, on the commission that my views should prevail, um, and, and, and therefore uh, we just had to to uh, disagree in the, at the end of the day. And it was, as I said to, to Carol, it, it, uh, it, it there were some very stormy meetings at the tail end, uh, and, and it was not an easy time. Um, and, and, and you probably uh, encountered similar uh, s similar sort of discussions in the Bill of Rights Forum. Yes, I think that I mean I would characterise the problem as effectively people who couldn't obtain through the ballot box their agenda were basically abusing the process to try and use it almost as a, a, a well yeah as a Trojan horse to basically deliver their particular policy preferences and that's why the thing fell apart and that's why any future attempt at that will result in the thing falling apart. Can I ask you in terms of um, the role of religion in society obviously has changed. 50 years ago, the majority of people certainly were nominally members of a church or attended a place of worship. That is obviously no longer the case. It's a minority, religion is a minority um, pursuit. But I'm just wondering, how do you see in terms of protection of religious freedom, um, the Bill of Rights process playing out? Or do you think that we have sufficient in current legislation and that there's there's no need to legislate for that through a Bill of Rights process? Oh, now you've um, rather put me on the spot there because I can't, I can't remember what it says in the uh, European Convention about religious freedoms. Uh, I mean, clearly I would be of the view that religious freedom is pretty important uh, and uh, I just can't... Uh, without having, to, without doing a little bit of research on the on the, on the issue, I can't say whether it is currently provided uh, protected. Okay. I suspect I suspect it is in the uh, European Convention somewhere. Okay. But yeah, it's an it's an important issue, uh, and, and uh, freedom to pursue your religious beliefs uh, of whatever they may be, I think, is um, you know, quite important. But I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not sure that it's under threat at the moment. No. Um, thank you. And Chair, just a point of housekeeping. On the 22nd of January, um, I received an answer from the Minister for Health to ask him um, how many terminations have been carried out in Northern Ireland since the um, 31st of March to the end of the year. The figure is 1,091. You might not think that's, you might not think that's enough, but I certainly do. Goodness. Thank you. Can't hear you, Chair. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I know that there was a lag in my stream there, but no, I think I wasn't muted or I was still muted. I'm just checking that no one else wants in. I haven't had any indications. Nope, Michelle isn't looking in. Mark, nope. 
Okay, well then that that is us. Thank you very much, Lady Trimble, for your for your presentation and for all your your answers. And we will uh, let you take your ease now. And thanks again for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And I shall go and have a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> well earned. Well earned. Thank you. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye. Okay, members, if we want to go then to the, the next item on our agenda, it's agenda item number four, which is chair's business. So just at this point, I want to take the opportunity while we're in um, public session to thank everyone that took the time to respond to our consultation, both um, in the, the survey questions and via the written submission answer. And I know we're obviously going to be, um, when we're compiling our report, we're going to be looking at those answers in, in greater detail. But the clerk has told me that we've had in excess of 2,400 responses, which is obviously really really good and, and and shows that there's been good engagement on this and obviously that's only the first step and we're going to have the, the stakeholder events and, and everything else um come coming uh, after that and over the course of the next year so thank you very much to anyone that took the time to respond and, and we appreciate that and, and the range of views will be reflected in our report then i want to go to item number five which is the draft minutes if members are content can we agree the minutes from our last meeting on the 28th of january yeah. So then we have matters arising, which is item number six of our uh, pack. And our, our matters arising this week is just to agree the report or the summary of the strategy afternoon, which we had in closed session, obviously, last week. Um, if members are content to agree that. Yeah. I think. Confirmed. Yeah. Yeah, content, brilliant. And then item number seven is our correspondence. You'll note in um, your packs beginning on page, I think, 63, we have a range of responses, both from individuals and from different groups. So if members are content to um, note those those items of uh, correspondence, I know that we have a letter from, the, from Kula, the Children's Commissioner, and just relating to her concerns around the consultation process and I believe the clerk has, has reached out to Kula around the continued engagements with, with young people in terms of her follow-up of her of her survey. So if everyone's content to note that if there's anything that wants to anyone that wants to raise anything. The thumbs up, Mike. Brilliant. And then we just have our forward work program, agenda item eight. If everyone is happy to agree that. Yeah. Okay, okay. And if anyone has any other business? No? Nope. Didn't know if you were priming yourself up to, to say something there, Christopher. Okay, so the, the date, time, place next weekend, it'll be the same time, the same place next Thursday. All right. Super. Thank we you. Close the call. Thank you very much. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Committee Room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly 